This is Priya Gupta here with the Dry Eye Chronicles, and I want to welcome everybody today with me. I have the infamous Dr. Chris Starr from Cornell, um, and we are so lucky to have him today. It's always a pleasure to spend time chatting with Chris, uh, who is an expert in ocular surface disease and anterior segment. So Chris, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Priya, thank you. Uh, Great to be here. Uh, (laughs) I love being called infamous. Um, no, it could go both ways, right? <laughs> I yeah, I, I, I'll take that as a compliment, I think. High compliment. Uh, yeah. But happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to uh, talk with you today about dry eye flares. Absolutely. So let's hit the ground running. So dry eye flares. Um, this is a concept within ocular surface disease that, you know, it, it's when I first started learning about uh, flares, I kind of was like, oh, of course, flares, you know, but then I realized you know, it, it wasn't something, it was something that I conceptually understood, but wasn't necessarily um, something that I was recognizing within my own patients um, in clinic. So let's talk a little bit about um, the patient profiles. Are there any specific types of dry eye patients that you might see in your clinic that are more susceptible to flares or certain populations that we should be looking for flares in? Yeah, well, you know, I think you bring up a good point, And that is, you know, a flare is it, the word is new, and it's it's really we've only been using it around the FDA approval of isuvus, lodopredinol, tapenate ophthalmic suspension, zero point two five percent. But it is something that, as anybody who sees ocular surface patients, dry eye patients, we've all seen patients come in with exacerbations or breakthrough. You know, there are a lot of different ways to describe what a flare is. And I think we're, we're all used to seeing these things, but we have never had a sort of unified term like a flare. But a flare is a perfect term for these breakthroughs or exacerbations. And, and I think it's great that we're all getting on the same page with that terminology because it is, in a lot of ways, a, a paradigm shift. Even though it's something we've always dealt with, it's a paradigm shift in the way, in the way we acknowledge it, the way we describe it, the way we, uh, the nomenclature, and also the way we treat it now. Uh, and I think that with that comes a lot of legitimacy. Uh, and and I do think that it, it helps patients. And when you use a word like flare in a patient and an established uh, disease state entity, like a flare, uh, I think that it, it, it they, they feel better and more reassured that they have a real problem and a real thing uh, that requires real treatment. And in this case, uh, FDA-approved prescription medication for exactly that, a dry eye disease flare. But of, of, of going on that same concept, uh, we did, uh, did a, a literature review with a, with a group of uh, other authors recently that was just published uh, in October of 2021 in the Ocular Surface, where we looked at 10 years of literature, did an extensive literature review, and of thousands upon thousands of papers that we looked at. There were only about 22 that had any kind of mention of what we defined as a flare. Uh, And it's kind of remarkable that, as you said, it's like this kind of amorphous new concept that isn't really new, but at the same time, it hasn't been studied. There aren't any prospective studies for sure. Uh, And in this paper, uh, we defined it. And the way we defined uh, a, a flare is a flare was considered to be an episode of worsening dry eye disease symptoms that may or may not be accompanied by worsening 
clinical signs in response to extrinsic triggers or environmental challenges in patients with previously diagnosed dry eye disease. And I, to me, that, that is a, a reasonable definition of what a flare is. But of interest, it doesn't specifically say how long a flare is. And, and that is something that we can certainly discuss because, I mean, it, how, do you, how would you gauge a flare? Is there a, a certain minimum amount of time that you would have to have symptoms to call it a flare? You know, I, I think it has to go on for at least a day or two, but I think there can be variety in its intensity, right? There might be periods of greater flare and lesser flare. Um, but I love in that definition, the focus on patient symptoms, that there it, it's symptom-based and that there may or may not be signs because we all know in, in an acute situation, sometimes the body hasn't time hasn't had time to like, quote unquote, become damaged. And we all know that, you know, I love your comments about sort of validating this as a disease, because um, when we look at our patients, it, it really is, you know, a debilitating condition, just dry eye disease overall. But I think what wears at people is these, you know, episodic, periodic flares, because it, it really is a disruption to their quality of life. It's some a, t- a period of time where they maybe even feel like helpless or, you know, um, really embrace that sort of chronic disease feeling, um, you know, which there's plenty of studies in the literature sh- literature to show that um, the quality of life in dry eye patients, I think in one study was similar to people with chronic angina, you know, so <laughs> this is this pretty bad quality of life. So I, I too think it's wonderful that there is a definition that clinicians can rally around um, and that our patients can also feel validated at the same time. So, you know, in, in maybe even from your work, Chris, um, what do you think are some potential triggers for flares? Um, you know, there's so many, we think of dry eye as, you know, the TFOS juice 2 definition of a multifactorial disease. So uh, walk me through what, what we as clinicians should kind of have on our radar for, to look for triggers for flares. Yeah, and one of the, to, to, to uh, jump on what you just said about patients feeling kind of dejected and, and losing some sense of hope when they have a flare because you got to remember a lot of these patients are have have reached a point in their treatment of chronic dry eye where they're actually doing well maybe they're on an immunomodulator maybe they're you know taking artificial tears x number of times a day maybe they've you know figured out what their common triggers are at home with computers whatever it may be and they've reached a point where they're doing great and they're feeling good and they're not thinking about their dry eyes and then all of a sudden some trigger happens and they tip over that homeostatic balance into horrific symptoms and or signs. And they, you know, that's even worse in a lot of ways than the original kind of diagnosis and treatment, because when you're doing really well and then you fall off the wagon, as it were, you know, obviously that that's pretty, pretty debilitating mentally, physically, uh, and and all of the things that go along with it and, and, and maybe some despondence over the fact that, God, I thought I was doing so well and, and now I'm not, you know, this is, this is hopeless, right? So it's great that we have medications that can treat those flares fairly quickly. But you asked about triggers and there are so many. Um, in, the, in the review article that we uh, published, there were, in the, in the studies, at least in the literature, there were sort of three categories of, of studies that we looked at. One were daily life uh, studies and with those, of course, the common triggers for a lot of uh, our 
patients and us are environmental conditions, pollution, blowing air, low humidity, cigarette smoke, staring at computers, allergens, medications, both topical and oral, and, and zillions of, of others. And, and that's part of what makes this complex is sort of identifying this sort of multitude of potential triggers for every patient. Uh, the other uh, uh, subset of papers that, and it makes a lot of sense that these were included, are controlled environment, uh, adverse environment studies, you know, trials of, of medications where you subject someone to an adverse environment. Well, that makes perfect sense. That induces a flare, and there are different ways of doing those. And then lastly, surgical. And of course, you and I have uh, a whole lot of experience at helping to define what a, a surgical uh, flare looks like and how to identify dry eye patients who might be at risk of, well, everybody who has surgery is at risk of a flare, but the ones who, you know, have pre-existing uh, OSD or dry eye are obviously at higher risk of having higher signs and symptom exacerbation after refractive or cataract surgery. And, you know, our asterisk paper uh, elucid elucidates that quite nicely. Um, but those were the three kind of in the, in the literature, those were the three, and each of those categories are a handful of studies. So there isn't a whole lot of literature out there, and hopefully going forward, now that we have a you know a definition, we have a name, we're all getting on the set, on board with these flares. That there will be more studies coming out, more good studies, prospective studies, control studies of what a flare is and, and how best to identify and, and treat them. Of course, the most important thing with a flare is is ideally avoiding flares. Right in an ideal world, nobody would get flares because we would be able to identify what all of these triggers are for every patient and they can somehow avoid these ma things magically and never have a flare. Maybe if everybody got into a bubble and humidified bubble, we, nobody would have flares. Uh, but unfortunately, we live in the real world and we're all going to get flares and all of you could be the best ocular surface doctor in the world and your patients are like Priya, I'm sure at least occasionally your patients suffer from flares. Even no, Chris, I, I don't take it responsibly. Like, you know, like it meaning like, yeah, the, it is part of this disease process. And, you know, absolutely, we could do everything under the sun, but a chronic autoimmune disease is, you know, it's going to do what it's going to do. Um, and our all we can do is do our best to treat it, which, you know, I think that this brings us to an important point, which is, you know, is it important to treat a flare? And as you mentioned, I think it's very important. So one of the things that we're just kind of at the forefront of learning is uh, taking the, the principles of, you know, autoimmune disease uh, in other fields, for example, with adaptive and innate immunity, we know that, um, you know, when the body has an acute trigger or acute uh, insult, there's going to be that ramping up of, of our immune response. But if we, if left untreated, the patient stays in a higher, um, you know, a, a higher immune state, if you want to say that all the T cells are upregulated, everything is, you know, sort of in that fight or flight, like ready to respond mode. And I really think that by treating flares, we're actually kind of quieting that process down and allowing patients to kind of stay at a more, uh, you know, quiescent, uh, non-reactive level. And I think that does translate into less flares per year and also maybe even achieving, you know, some of the symptom relief in between those flares. Please listen to the following important safety information. Indication. Isuvis Lodopredinol Etabinate Ophthalmic Suspension 0.25%.
is a corticosteroid indicated for the short-term, up to two weeks, treatment of the signs and symptoms of dry eye disease. Important safety information. Contraindications. Isuvis, as with other ophthalmic corticosteroids, is contraindicated in most viral diseases of the cornea and conjunctiva, including epithelial herpes simplex keratitis, dendritic keratitis, vaccinia and varicella, and also in mycobacterial infection of the eye and fungal diseases of ocular structures. Warnings and precautions. Delayed healing in corneal perforation. Topical corticosteroids have been known to delay healing and cause corneal and scleral thinning. Use of topical corticosteroids in the presence of thin corneal or scleral tissue may lead to perforation. The initial prescription and each renewal of the medication order should be made by a physician only after examination of the patient with the aid of magnification such as slit lamp biomicroscopy and, where appropriate, fluorescein staining. Intraocular pressure, IOP, increase. Prolonged use of corticosteroids may result in glaucoma with damage to the optic nerve, as well as defects in visual acuity and fields of vision. Corticosteroids should be used with caution in the presence of glaucoma. Renewal of the medication order should be made by a physician only after examination of the patient and evaluation of the IOP. Cataracts Prolonged use of corticosteroids may result in posterior subcapsular cataract formation. Bacterial infections Use of corticosteroids may suppress the host response and thus increase the hazard of secondary ocular infections. In acute purulent conditions of the eye, corticosteroids may mask infection or enhance existing infection. Viral Infections Use of corticosteroid medication in the treatment of patients with a history of herpes simplex requires great caution. Use of ocular corticosteroids may prolong the course and may exacerbate the severity of many viral infections of the eye, including herpes simplex. Fungal infections. Fungal infections of the cornea are particularly prone to develop coincidentally with long-term local corticosteroid application. Fungus invasion must be considered in any persistent corneal ulceration where a corticosteroid has been used or is in use. Fungal cultures should be taken when appropriate. Adverse reactions. The most common adverse drug reaction following the use of Isuvis for two weeks was installation site pain, which was reported in 5% of patients.